Hey, hey, everybody, what's up? It's your boy, MJ. Welcome to the Black Wine Guy Experience. My guest today is the only American to have won every major wine award and given in the English language, Karen McNeil. Uh, her awards include the James Beard Award for Wine and Spirits Professional of the Year, the Louis Roterer Award for Best Consumer Wine Writing, and the International Wine and Spirits Award as the Global Wine Communicator of the Year. Uh, she is the former wine correspondent for the Today Show on NBC. And Karen is a highly sought-after speaker and consultant. In 2019, the Lux Life Awards named Karen McNeil & Company the best dynamic wine consultancy in the United States. And lastly, she has recently released the third edition of her award-winning book, The Wine Bible. Welcome, Karen. Thanks, MJ. Well, first of all, thank you so much for coming in today. I know you know I've uh, been going back and forth with your people, your team, and uh, you know you just released the books. So you're out on a book tour. I take it. I am. I'm. Uh, yeah. I was uh, right before being here in New York. I was in Singapore. Big. Um, mm. You know, lots of interest in wine in Asia these days. Yeah. Yeah. So let's. Uh, there's. You've had this storied career. Um, and it's still going, um, and, and you're in the midst of it, actually. Um, no signs of slowing down. But let's start at the beginning. Where, where are you from? Well, I, I was born in Boston, um, and then my, my family um, lived in um, outside of Reno, Nevada for um, some years as I was a kind of preteen. And then most of my adult life was spent in New York here um, before moving to Napa Valley a few years ago. Okay, so um, born in Boston and then Reno, um, what did your parents do that took you <laughs> yeah. from Boston to Reno? I know. <laughs> well, uh, it was not a, a good family, really. Mm. It, it was a poor Irish Catholic family. And, um, you know, I... Mm, I I I think they're probably they were probably in the files of uh, some police stations in various places. But ah, okay. yeah, so they I think they were escaping. Yeah. Um, uh, <laughs> who knows what? I was too young to know right. what. But I I actually ran away from home at fourteen and a half, and uh, and never went back. Oh wow, wow. Um, what's well, well, <laughs> what what <laughs> Where did you run away to? Well, you know, you you uh, you cannot supposedly you're not you're not supposed to run away at fourteen and a half, right? Um, right. And I, uh, as I said, it was a pretty bad family. Yeah. Um, I I was terrified because I I I thought that I would be put um, into a foster home, oh, and wow. it's just by sheer luck in a way that I wasn't. But um, actually, I. <laughs> I got. I opened the phone book, looked under lawyers, looked at A, called the first um, law firm listed under A in the yellow pages, got myself a pro bono lawyer, and I didn't even know the word pro bono, of course, um, but eventually was able to um, convince the judge in my case to let me live on my own because... I was a really good kid in school, and I had straight A's. I was the valedictorian of the high junior high school and then high school. And the so the, the judge sort of gave me a parole person who would check in with me once every few months. Otherwise, I just had to prove to him that I could get straight A's and support myself. So I did, starting at 14 and a half. 
that is incredible. Uh, my wife is a former social worker. She'll be blown away by that story. Um, but I'm, I, I could tell from what she shared with me, it's very, he actually used the judge, he or she actually used judgment. Because <laughs> uh, you could have got put in a bad foster, foster care is gnarly. And, you know, mm. you, they could have, yeah. So good for you. Kudos for you. Wow, that's amazing. So um, you were the valedictorian. So where did you go to college, university? <laughs> well, you know, when you're a kid like that, it was pretty interesting because uh, by the time I was maybe 17, you know, and you're, most kids are thinking about college, uh, one of my teachers said to me, so, so where do you want to go to college? And I, I said, oh, I'm not going to college. He said, why not? And I said, because people like me don't go to college. Mm. And he said, you're kidding. C come on, you're, you're, you're the damn valedictorian, <laughs> right? You can go to college. I said, because I was the first person who graduated from high school in my family. There was no talk of college ever. Um, there were no books, no music in my house. And it, it was it just it was not a it was not an intellectual environment, let's say. Um, but anyway, uh, this um, teacher said to me, "Okay, will you do something for me?" I really liked this teacher. Um, so he paid for me to take advan uh, CLEP advanced placement tests, which I took. And I got a full scholarship. So he said, so now like, you're going to go to college, right? <laughs> <laughs> I said, oh, OK. Um, so I started at the University of Nevada at Reno. But then um, through a circuitous route, I left, decided I, I really wanted to go to New York, drove across country, and um, managed to, I mean, I, I arrived in New York on Thanksgiving Day in 1979 with $6, knowing no one. Thank God I could talk myself my way in, not myself, but talk my way into the YMCA to stay, YWCA, mm -hmm. for a night. The next day, by the next day, I had three jobs because I was really good at getting jobs at this point. I mean, they were menial work, but still. Um, and uh, once I got myself kind of back established, I went back to school in New York and graduated from Pace. Oh, wow. Um, <clears throat> how old were you when you drove across country? Just curious. Uh, I must have been about 18, because I got to New York when I was either 18 or 19. I mean, it's just fascinating. You ran away from home, <laughs> convinced the judge to not put you in foster here. Get a scholarship, <laughs> and then I mean, there is a, there is something, there's something. You, when we're doing our warm up, you're talking about what it takes for certain people to persevere, and mm. there's something inside of you that's. I'm sure those people would love to have a conversation with you once you've shared your stories because uh, there's some some resilience there that. Uh, wow. Well, you know, it connects to wine because. You know, when you ask people what's the first wine they had or the first wine that inspired you, when did you start drinking wine? You know, my, I, I don't always tell the story, but um, uh, for me it was when I was 15 because I was living on my own. Nobody told me I couldn't. 
I, um, I, would, I would go to this one checker. I knew her schedule perfectly. <laughs> I was never carded because uh, I looked kind of like a serious kid, yeah. you know, uh, and uh, looked very straight-laced. And, and I never drank too much, but every night when I was 15, I would have a glass of wine while I was doing my homework. And, um, you know, mind you, it was like 89 cent Bulgarian red, right? Yeah. Every now and then on a special occasion, dollar a bottle leave for a <laughs> But, But still, I mean, by the time I moved to New York and um, tried to become a, a wine writer, I had been drinking wine for four years by then. The story, this, I love this. The story gets better and better. Like what? Like what? Fifteen-year-old drinks one glass. I mean, like, and what? And 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 it's kind of like, um, like it was like the coming attraction in your life. Like you, you have a glass of wine and you're right. You're doing your work. I'm sure you, sometimes you're right. You have a glass of wine and you're writing and you're just in your zone. But I didn't. I certainly didn't know it then. And um, you know, when I I moved to New York with the idea of being a writer, was a complete. It, it was it was crazy. Uh, I mean, only. <laughs> In some ways, I was a pretty wise kid, but this was this made no sense at all. I'd never taken a writing class. I didn't have a degree in journalism. I, when I arrived, I, I lived uh, for a couple of years. I was on food stamps because I was really poor, even though I had some menial jobs. And I lived in a um, fifth floor walk up in um, what was then called Hell's Kitchen. Mm -hmm. uh, on the border of now more fashionable Chelsea. Right. But, um, you know, it was a pretty um, bad part of New York. And so I worked in the morning and in the afternoon. At night, I apprenticed myself for free to literary agents. And then in the late, late night, I would uh, write articles hoping to get published. In those days, you wrote an article, you, you know, mm -hmm. mailed it in. Mm -hmm. And I, I collected uh, 324 rejection slips, which I thumbtacked to the wall of my apartment and looked at them every day. I wish I had them now, actually. It's somewhere along the line. I, I, I must have thrown those <laughs> out. But, but my first article uh, that sold was, of all things, because we were just talking about butter, my first article was on butter, and yeah. it sold to the Village Voice. Yeah, I, that's my. It's so funny. <clears throat> it's like I don't pre the question, but I was like, I was going to say, "Well, you major in?" I wasn't journalism, obviously. You <laughs> but but I love the fact that you said, "I'm going to be a wine writer." And my next one, well, let's talk about butter. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, because um, you know, in those days in New York, there were all these great old Jewish delis that mm -hmm. used to buy huge blocks of butter. I'm talking like two feet by two feet blocks. And you would go into these delis and a guy in, you know, this big white jacket would take out what looked like a machete and just like carve you off a big piece of, big chunk of butter, which was white, not yellow, by the way, because they put no dye in it. And so I, I don't know. I took it upon myself to, to to try all these butters from all these Jewish delis, and sent this piece in to the Village Voice. And for whatever reason, they thought it was funny and they liked it. I got paid thirty dollars, the best thirty dollars ever. Immediately went out to the hip nightclub in New York, Max's Kansas City at that time. Sat at the bar, ordered a bottle of champagne, and drank the whole thing. 
You'll be surprised to know that food stamps will not pay for champagne oh, really? sitting at a nightclub bar. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so I had to have, like, you know, cash money for that. Um, yeah, so that, uh, that was my first article. It's a long time, though, between butter and wine. Okay, okay. And <laughs> in, in publishing and getting in for me to get published in wine. Um. I got people who listen all around the world. Tell people what the village about the Village Voice, which is now defunct, but it was yes. a, an iconic. Tell tell people a little bit about the Village Voice. Yeah, the Village Voice in um, in you know sort of predating me in the fifties and sixties and seventies was uh, a kind of leftist newspaper, very thick. Lots of people in um, in the jazz world read it. They always had. Um, you know, incredible reviews of everything happening in New York. It was, in a sense, a cross between a mainstream and a counterculture mm -hmm. newspaper. And it had a huge circulation. It was the, the paper that anyone who was in the arts certainly read in New York. Yeah. And even... Um, I used to pick it up. It was like it, it, it had all, like I said, it had all the underground bars, like yeah. uh, the shows who was coming to town. It was, it was exactly what you said it was. Um, and, and after $30, like that's, that's a lot of money back then for it, right? Like people don't get like, because uh, we have crazy inflation now as we record this interview. But like it was enough that you could buy, like people, I'm somebody like, she got champagne for $30 and you probably didn't have to spend the whole $30 on the bottle even. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> No, I, it, you know, it, um, writers are not paid very much. It's surprising to me that even today I'm, yep. I'm sort of paid when I do articles about the same amount of money that I made in the late 80s and 90s. It's, a, it's kind of a sad story about wine journalism. Yeah, um, there was a, an online that uh, magazine, well, it was, it was a combination between a magazine and uh, and a direct-to-consumer uh, that just went under, and um, but it even I know people were writing for for those, and you know they everybody has several gigs. It's kind of like podcasting too; like you have to have some other gigs unless yes. you, unless you have ten million downloads. <laughs> um, <clears throat> so um, you said it was a long time between butter and um, and wine. Um, you were at some point commissioned to write an article for L. Was that the first foray into wine writing, or um, or no? I can't. I don't think the first one was L. But um, well, tell us about the first one. Yeah, in in those days too, we're talking about like the late seventies. Um, the you know the seventies and eighties were this great heyday of magazines. E you know, Gentleman's Quarterly and L and Mirabelle. I mean, they were just town and country, so many vibrant magazines. Um, and all of the wine writing at that time in the whole country was controlled by about five or six men here in New York. And they wrote for everybody, including those mm -hmm. magazines that you would have logically thought would have a woman writer, right. like Vogue or even Good Housekeeping. No, one of these five guys wrote for it. It's like a syndicate. Yes, it was. <laughs> so, and you know, there was no... I, at that point, by that point, I was a pretty well-established food writer. I had written, I was writing for the New York Times, for example, on food. Um, but I, what I really wanted to write about was wine. But there was no breaking in because there were no wine schools in New York. Retailers couldn't taste you on wine. Retailers didn't have classes. 
There were no wine events. And even though I had been pretty well published in food by that point, I was still pretty poor. And I didn't have enough money to to buy great wine. And I didn't have parents who, who you know, showered me with the beauties in their cellar right. or whatever. So anyway, one, one of these guys, one of these uh, five guys was a friend of mine. And he knew how much I wanted to learn about wine. And meanwhile, you know, every week, the producers from around the world would fly in just to taste these guys on wine. You know, it would be the Chianti Classico producers mm -hmm. on Monday and the Port producers on Wednesday. It was unbelievable. So anyway, he, he asked the other guys if I could, if I could taste with them. And uh, the answer was yes on one condition. That I not talk. What? Yeah. Uh, see, so, so <laughs> I, so I didn't, I didn't, I didn't talk for about six years, and for six years, I was waiting for six tasted, months. Tasted with them every week, and you know, MJ, I, I didn't, I didn't want to, I didn't want to talk to give my opinion. Yeah. As far as I was concerned, I didn't have an opinion mm -hmm. yet. I, I didn't know enough to have a valid opinion, so I, I, I didn't want to chat and have an opinion. I wanted to ask them questions. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And like, why is red wine red? Mm -hmm. Right? All of the very basic questions that are usually more complex than, than you think. Um, so the story, though, has a happy ending in a way because all those years later, when I eventually wrote the Wine Bible, I remembered so clearly all the questions I had all the questions that were confusing, all the issues of, wait a minute, why is A true and C true, but B is not true, mm. right? Because wine is, is often illogical, or you need someone to kind of explain it to you. And so I, in a sense, credit the success of the Wine Bible with having to have been quiet for all those six years. Well, there's a couple, I mean, so, there's so much, so much in that, right? Um, I had... I'm sure you know Eric Azimov. Um, but he was on, he told a summer story. He was writing for food because they had a wine writer. Like, it was hard even for him. Like, he had to inherit that. Like, like, so I'm sure that that guy who was his uh, wine writer was probably one of those five guys, right? <laughs> like, yeah. And, um, but yeah, when you said that, I was like, um, and, you know, so I think wine is becoming more open but it's just tough to break into i think people need to understand it and your perseverance i mean so here and like i said we had had, uh, had mary young mulligan she was like the you know, first american or second north american to be master wine um because this became a big issue this is a big issue right now um about um diversity and inclusion so what what have you seen um over your career and um and i would just say i want to say this there but listen like and I don't think people understand how much you did by being able to sit in that room quiet for six years. <laughs> like, like, like an unsung hero of, of, you know, of the wine suffrage movement. Yes, <laughs> yeah. Well, it's better, right? It's a lot better now. You yourself having this podcast is evidence that it's better now. Uh, me sitting here is evidence mm -hmm. that it's better now. But it's still really hard to break in. The, the one thing that people have today that, um, that we didn't have um, a couple of decades ago is, is social media. I mean, 
look at um, some of the really hip um, bloggers and um, social media influencers. I mean, I think for black women, for example, it's been great <coughs> to be able to have your own voice and start creating your own content. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, that uh, that is true. I mean, uh, you uh, you can choose yourself nowadays. Yeah. You, you don't have to be chosen. So that that is very true, um, and uh, that's just incredible. So let's get to. Uh, L, what, was that like your big break? <laughs> would say that your, was that kind of like your big break, or how would you describe that for you? Let me think if the first, I think the first piece was either in L or Mirabella. And it, um, <laughs> you know, one of the things that happened soon after that is I began to have editors call me and ask me if I would write about wine for them. This presented, I was both wonderful on the one hand, but it was terrible on the other because there were still a limited number of outlets. And I knew that if, you know, New York Magazine called me, that meant that they were going around Alex Bespaloff, who was one of these guys, <laughs> um, um, the late, wonderful Alex Bespaloff. And um, so I was like, ah, man, you know, you can't step in on someone else's turf, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. But the, the number of turfs were very limited. So I made a bit of a reputation, I think, for myself as writing really a little bit offbeat kinds of pieces that these guys wouldn't have thought to to write in the very beginning. Um, and again, it was a way of kind of sneaking into the industry from, a, you know, kind of an end run in. Mm -hmm. do, you, do you remember the, the uh, title of that, that article? Mm, gosh, I don't. I should. I, I don't. So um, when did you start? Uh, did you ever... And like I said, I know you've published articles just about every place, but like, did you ever have like a, a kind of like a writing re residency at a, a publication for a while, or anything like that? Hmm. Um, when I began writing a lot for uh, for magazines and and newspapers, I would often have, you know, six or seven articles going at the same time. Because, you know, rents in New York, right? You couldn't be writing one article <laughs> uh, uh, and make your rent, for sure. And some of them, for quite a while, some of those um, pieces would be on food as well as wine. And so one day, um, I had written a piece on, of all things, sandwiches, and especially New England sandwiches, like lobster rolls, for the New York Times Magazine. So I'm sitting in my apartment um, on Monday, and I get a call, and the person says, hello, this is Peter Workman. And of course, I, you know, I nearly fell off my chair because <laughs> Peter Workman was a legend in the publishing industry. He was the head of Workman Publishing. He was considered one of the most brilliant marketing guys in publishing. and. So I knew of him, mm -hmm. but I certainly didn't know him. And he said, so you want to have lunch in a couple of hours? And I I, I said, okay. So anyway, we I go off to lunch with him. And he says, so I read your piece yesterday in the New York Times. I really like the way you write. What book have you always wanted to write? And I thought, 
can this be possibly happening to me? You know, this is like sitting on a stool in Hollywood in the old days, and Steven Spielberg decides to cast you as the lead <laughs> in, in some movie, uh, even though you're completely unknown. So I said, um, I've actually written a book, and I had written a food book um, published by Random House. And I said, I, I, I don't, it was not a good experience, and I don't want to write a book. And he said, that is the wrong answer. Think again. <laughs> so I said, okay, you're right, you're right. It is the wrong answer. Okay, I do want to write a book, um, but uh, I want it to be on wine. And he said, well, we've, we've never published a book on wine, but uh, okay, can you have it ready in a year? I said, absolutely. <laughs> and 10 years later, out came the first wine Bible. <laughs> so, it was supposed to be, so it took 10 times as long. And every, every year he would call me up and he would say, okay, just promise me that you are working on it, that you're not like hanging around in your pajamas or something. And I, I, I would say, Peter, I, I promise you I'm working on it. But it's my line was, it's bigger than we thought. Um, and uh, yeah, so when I brought the manuscript to him, you know, here you are carrying this 5,000-page manuscript. And I sat in his office, and of course I was terrified. What if, after 10 years of essentially unpaid work, mind you, right? What if he didn't like it? Like, oh, no. So I was quiet, and he, you know, I watch him, you know, leafing through it, reading parts. So he looks up at me, and he says, it's brilliant and we're gonna call it the Wine Bible. And I said, absolutely not. <laughs> I'm so, I got the wrong answer yeah. every time here. Yeah. And he said, so apparently uh, you, my dear, did not read your contract very carefully because, and, and did you know this, a book's title is, is considered part of the book's marketing. You as an author don't have a say in a book's title. And he said to me, listen, for the last 10 years, I trusted you when you told me that everything between the covers, right? Um, he said, I, I don't question any of it. I trusted you, and now you have to trust me. Mm. Well, there you go, you aspiring writer. you writing a book, just makes you check your contract. Exactly. What is it like? What, what is involved in a 10-year process? What was your process writing a book? Obviously, there's a lot of research, but it is called the Wine Bible, which is basically saying it's it it's that's it. It's a quintessential uh, treatise, if you will. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> you know, um, you know, you got you got the tr treatise on Jesus. You got a treatise on wine, and they actually interact. <laughs> so do. you know, um, <laughs> and Jesus's treatise. Um, <laughs> um, like, where did you start? Where did, where did you begin? So you had the you had the meeting. He said, write the book. Well, that's the, the, the first and, and in some ways the hardest thing to figure out. Like you go home and now you're like, and now what, <laughs> right? <laughs> because, uh, you know, like the, it's this huge elephant. Where do you start? How do you, you start? You start by cleaning your apartment because you don't know what to do. Yeah, so you just exactly. start doing every other thing. That's right. Yeah, <laughs> clean those closets. Get it. Get everything organized. That's right. Um, yeah. And Workman, I must say, was no help because I would call up my editor and I would say, so, you know, I'm thinking about this, but I'm, I'm running into this problem. Like, what should I do? And, and she would say, 
it's your book, do whatever you want, and hang up. Um, so um, anyway, the, the other thing which you'll really know, and, and of course all your listeners too who love wine, is figuring out the relative weights of things was yeah. really important. Like if you do four pages on Brunello di Montalcino, one region in Tuscany, what should New York State get? Right? Back then, probably a paragraph. <laughs> well, a paragraph yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, because <laughs> how much space you give right. is uh, to a topic is you're kind of, uh, you know, you're making a judgment mm. right there. Mm. So, um, lucky, but I made two, I made sort of two promises to myself that I really kept the whole time. One is not to read anybody else because when you're writing, you know, this was the whole, Bob Parker had become a phenomenon by then, and mm -hmm. the critic Bob Parker. And people would say, wow, did you read what Robert Parker said about X? And I'd be like, no, I, I wasn't reading anybody. I was, because I wanted my reactions about wine to be truly my own. I didn't want anybody else even subliminally in mm -hmm. my head. And, um, and the other thing that I promised myself was not to be internally referential, by which I mean, you know, when I was starting out, people, I, I think, really meanly would say something like, you know, whatever, you'd be tasting some red wine, and they would say, oh, reminds me of the 61 Margot, don't you think? And you said, and you I, want to be like, MFR, I never had a 61 Margot. Exactly. <laughs> I, I would be like, oh, you know, come on, you asshole. That's exactly. Really, like, how you know for a fact that I have never had a 1961 Margot. It was a way of, but you remember, wine used to be, especially in Britain, it was class, right? It right. was a way of keeping certain people out. Right. Right. And so I have never said wine X is like wine Y. If I can't describe wine X in using words that everybody understands, then I'm in trouble. I shouldn't be in the business. Mm. Yeah, I mean, there's, uh, you know, this comes up a lot. I mean, wine is a wealth product. It's a luxury product. Um, it's changing. Um, but, yeah, I mean, you know, you've, you've been a lot of tastings. I still, I go to, I'm fortunate. I get to taste a lot of good stuff like you do. But, like, I... I think I started because I, I, I have so much reverence for wine, it needs a little bit more irreverence still. You know, it needs a kick in the ass. Mm -hmm. It is just it is just fermented grapes at the end of the <laughs> day. I mean, it's glorious, but, like, I think it, it can be used uh, as a weapon. But, um, I mean, you like, I, I love what you shared about giving weight to stuff, but, like, I, I, I couldn't... Did you go visit wine regions while you were uh, yeah. while you were uh, doing yeah. your research in that ten year period? So um, by the time that I started the wine bible, I had already been to every major wine region in the world um, because I'd been writing about wine for magazines. Mm, so okay. I, you know, I traveled a lot then, and then during the writing of the wine bible, traveled a lot and still um, still do because. One of the things that makes the Wine Bible so different is, um, you know, a lot of wine books are sort of just gray column after gray column, and they're, they're really stripped down just to wine. But to me, what makes wine come alive is, you know, culture and food and history and religion and art and all the stuff, the cultural stuff around it is what makes it enriching, and it's where wine really finds its place and its voice. So I put all that stuff back in. 
And uh, when you're in a place, you have to you have to feel that vibe. You have to figure out that culture. And if you can if you can feel it, if you can really get there and and listen and be close to it, then you then you can write about wine better. Mm. Um, my my editor at one point asked me when I was doing Wine Bible 2, she called me up and she said, where are you, by the way? I said, uh, I'm in um, Argentina, in Mendoza, Argentina. And she said, oh, what are you doing? I said, well, right at this moment, I'm about to take a tango lesson. And she said, Karen, it's a book on wine. I'm like, yeah, I know, but I don't think you can understand Malbec <laughs> until you understand the tango. And I, 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 MJ, I really believe that, right? You've got to get into the culture. I don't know if I'm saying, but I was like, She's, she's gonna be a tango dancer or something. <laughs> <laughs> Not even mouth. It was. A, I I just had that sense, um, and I, I begat the question when you said that you had traveled so much when you were a, a wine writer. Um, what was what was your? Do you remember your first uh, wine trip abroad? Yes, I do. I do remember because um, I had just uh, gotten published, maybe once or twice. And I had gone to interview, it was around Christmas time, and the head of the Champagne News and Information Bureau, I had gone to interview him and um, wrote this wonderful piece on Champagne, my first piece. And it also turned out that he uh, represented all of the Sherry region of Spain. And so he told me that, and I said, oh, gosh, I would love to go to southern Spain. I'm sure Sherry is wonderful. And he said, well, we're taking 50 of the top journalists in the United States to, uh, to Sherry, to Jerez, on this trip in a couple of months. So send me, uh, you know, this is, I think, I don't know, it wasn't email. Send me a note or a fax or something saying that you're interested. So I did, and a few months later, he called me up and he said, uh, too bad, you're in importance, you're number 51 in the country. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, oh, it's like come fourth on. place in the Olympics. Yeah. So uh, anyway, with one day to go, he called me back and he said, someone is canceled. Pack your bags. So I went to Sherry, uh, to Hereth, and I got there and I hated the wine. I just, I hated it. I, I, I came back, I thought, okay, I'm going to write... A, a piece called Death by Sherry. Um, but you know what I realized is that some, because now I love Sherry, I realized that some wines are rite of passage wines. Mm. You know, like sushi is a rite of passage food. You've got to eat it a lot. And then one day, the it lights, yeah, yeah. The, it clicks. The light switch flips. And all of a sudden, you get it, right? So I had to, in fact, today, even today, when students tell me, my students tell me, oh, they don't like wine X, Y, Z, I say, it's because you haven't had enough of it yet. Mm. Mm -hmm. And once you hit the baseball 50 times, then you can come back to me and either tell me you now get it or, or you don't like it. And then it's valid. But to just go and taste a wine a few times and say, nah, I, I don't think this is very good, mm, doesn't work that way. No, you're right, it's, and that's, I mean, that's what we do. Like you said, I love the sushi analogy because, I mean, just children, like kids 
have never eaten something. They're like, I don't want it. I don't like it. Yeah. <laughs> right. Like, like literally, they could look at broccoli. Like, I don't want it. I don't like it. Yeah. They've never had it. <laughs> exactly. Right. So you had a wine twice, once. You don't know. You know, the different in wine being so expansive, you got to keep trying it. Like you said, I love that. Like until you've done it like a certain number of times, then it becomes valid. But. Um, you know, this might be a good time just on that note to just take a quick break and we're going to come back with more Karen in just a few seconds. Okay, we're back. So, and I learned something to do because um, I am, I like to use the excuse I'm from New Jersey. I think sometimes I can be verbally lazy even though I have a podcast. So, um, but Hereth, uh, not Herez. And I'm sure a lot of people are something. Hereth, yes. J E R E Z, but Hereth. Um, excuse me. Uh, so the book comes out. How was the book received upon release? Oh, well, Wine Bible 3, the one that just came out a couple of weeks ago, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm so grateful. I mean, I'm tempted to cry sometimes. The, the Wine Bible has actually changed a lot of people's career courses they've or they've it's turned them on to wine um, people write me the most amazing letters and emails so I'm uh, yeah I'm, I'm grateful for that you know I, I think it's because if you've read it you know that it's written in a very different way it, mm -hmm. it was the first big American book too and you know, I love my British colleagues, but they sort of assume a lot of familiarity sure. with um, European wine geography, which Americans didn't have, sure. and I didn't assume that. And the other thing is that so many of the great British writers, you know, they went to Oxford, uh, but some, I mean, yeah, I mean, yeah. You can feel that in yeah. their writing, right? Well, I, I was a street kid. I did not go to Oxford or Cambridge. And the the wine Bible, you I think when you read it, you feel like you know what if she could do it, I can do it. Yeah, yeah. Um, I love that. I love that. Yeah, it, it's so true. Um, so many differences. <laughs> um, I'm also really intrigued about your second book. Tell everybody about your second book, uh, Wine, Food, and Friends. Yeah. Um, so one of the things that has always surprised me is. We, we probably all have seen some cooking shows, right? There are a lot of cooking shows on television. A lot of them are really fun, well done. Why isn't there a wine show? Why aren't there 10 wine shows on television? I'm trying to turn this pot. This should be a wine show. This, uh, this be a very good wine show. Yeah. A lot of fun wine show. It should be. <laughs> um, so in 2004, I got together with um, two other people one of whom was a professional money raiser, fundraiser, mm -hmm. and the other uh, was the head of his own production company for uh, PBS, for various shows on PBS. And we thought, you know, we're a perfect threesome. We can do this together. I can do content and be on air. Mm -hmm. um, the, <laughs> the head of production can get us onto PBS and does all the camera work, all the editing, and the money guy can raise the money. And in 2004, we um, did raise a million dollars to do, which is what you need a min at a minimum, to do a 13-part series um, for PBS. So we, uh, we 
raised that mi- that million dollars and did a show called Wine, Food, and Friends with Karen McNeil. Uh, it was very successful. It, in fact, won an Emmy, a local Emmy. And um, it... Uh, said every major award. <laughs> yeah, I forgot about that yeah. one. <laughs> well, anyway, yeah. Um, but then, right, you know, usually what happens with television is once you get in, once you do a television show and it's it's accepted, your next round of funding is easy. Sure. It's um, supposed to be. Yep. But we were now trying to raise money in 2008 and 2009 when all the financial markets crashed mm. and nobody was in the mood to fund television. So uh, I wound up doing a book as a result mm-hmm. of that series called Wine, Food, and Friends because I love wine and food. Um, yeah, but uh, but that's where it had to stop. What was the um, what was the premise of the of, of the, the, the the PBS series? Well, the premise was that wine and food are, you know, they're so they're so closely. Linked. In fact, they are the same thing. It's an agricultural product. Yep. So and yeah. and all it is is flavor. And yep. what difference does it make oh. if it's solid flavor or liquid flavor in your mouth? Mm-hmm. You know, I just like it drives me crazy when I hear people say. Um, I remember the great uh, cookbook writer Paula Wolfert used to say, "Oh, Karen, you choose the wine. I I can't choose the wine. I'm a food person." And I would say, Paula. <coughs> It's 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 just liquid flavor versus solid flavor. You cannot. And in fact, I've asked sensory scientists this. Mm. Is it possible that you can be a food person and not a wine person? Like you really get and understand food flavor, but not wine flavor. And sensory scientists will tell you, no, it does not matter. Your brain doesn't care if it's liquid or solid. You're either into flavor or you're not. Thank you. That sells an argument between me and my wife because my wife is into food, really. And she loves to drink wine. But when I, like if I'm stuck and I'm asked for a tasting note, she she's like, I don't know, I just like to drink it. But now I have proof. Yes. Sensory science. So okay. there, baby. What's her What's her name? Pam. Pam. <coughs> Pam. Listen, you got to call me, friend. Yep. <laughs> no more of this. Yeah. Help him with the damn tasting she, I mean, note. I know she she makes these and she you know she and she'll just try recipe after recipe and you know cardamom this and this obscure you know go buy some sumac and then it goes we <laughs> really need it for one recipe all that stuff you know and I'm like I know and she's like nope just uh, it's got a kick that's what you'll say <laughs> um, but also I think in this book I read I read somewhere that um that you did the food and wine pairings like in everyday situations yeah I, but le- you know I have to admit that at the end I think it's more important to match wine to mood mm. than to food. Ooh. You know, if you're in the, because I, 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 I think being the wine and food pairing police is like not a good thing. Um, if you're in the mood to drink a Chardonnay and you're putting a steak on the grill, so be it. Okay. I say that all the time. Like for the first rule of wine for me is drink whatever you want with yes. whatever you want. Yeah. And I say, and I use that same example. If you want a big buttery Chardonnay and a ribeye, do it because you know like it's like coke or seven up with your burger like what different i mean it's the flavors you want to have in your mouth right you you prompted something i was in walla walla past weekend and someone out there said this and it, it, you, it was it was a preview of what you said is they said i am a i am a um purveyor of flavor yeah. is how they saw themselves yeah 
right? And I love what you said about that. Like flavor's flavor, and um, that that is just a um, <clears throat> mind blown. Now, PBS, <clears throat> tell people about PBS because I think people hear public broadcasting system, and, and you know, during the last election cycle, um, or when someone became president, they cut. Fun. People think like PBS gets all this money mm. for shows. How, how, and you mentioned you had a money person. like, Yeah. No, PBS does not. Um, it doesn't fund television. You have to come with your own sponsors and your own money. And you have to do it to their spec, right? Oh, yes. Yeah. You've yes. got to do it to their spec with your money. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, there's a reason there aren't more television shows online. Um, it, not only are, are all the practical mechanics of, it, of that difficult. But then, um, you know, you think of the great food shows, you know, you're watching people bang pans around and flames are going and they're stirring the risotto yeah. and like doing all this stuff. Um, I mean, you and I could probably swirl glass as well, but it's right. not the same as, right. as, as all the pyrotechnics of food. Yeah. So, um, I don't know. I still think there's room for a great show on wine. If I had enough money, I would I would go around the world doing um, interviewing the most amazing people in wine everywhere. That's funny. I sometimes I, have a, I mix the questions up, and one I took out, which I wish I hadn't now, um, because if I'm interviewing like a lot of people in wine, I'm like, well, if money were no object, what would you be doing? And most people are like, I'm doing. It. I'm a winemaker. I'm this. But not only, but I love your like. You, I, okay. You know, it's it's up to two billion dollars now, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. You could do one hell of a wine show, Karen. Yeah. The buy-in is a little bit big now. Yeah, um, got to win that lottery. Exactly. Man. <laughs> um, so, um, and I I do say because I'm reading Anthony Bourdain's book, a uh, book not his book, a book about him uh, in the weeds uh, by his producer, and um, what you just said it crystallized something because. I mean, basically, what you're doing—that's what he was hearing around. Maybe not drinking wine, but it was—it was always the local alcohol beverage and, and talking with the local people, immersing in the culture, like you said, like why you're doing tango dancing, um, like. But you did this series; it didn't really have the sizzle. That's the thing I didn't realize. Like every dish on there, they would go in the kitchen and have to shoot again. So that's where you get the except the clanking of the pans, the fire, the, the flambe. Right. So I, I love when things, like you said, about. Drink that wine, like things. <laughs> I'm like, I'm like, yeah, no, this this sounded like a great show. I was like, I'm so intrigued. Like, why, did, you know, it sounded like basically what Bourdain did, but like, didn't have. I mean, you, you could have savored. I mean, you can only savor so many champagne. Yeah, I mean, I'm trying, exactly. You know, yeah, uh, you know. I went and talked to um, uh, Tony Bourdain's producers um, at one point. This was before he sadly committed suicide. Um, because they were thinking about that. Those guys love wine, too. Mm -hmm. And um, their production, his production company, 0.0. Zero point Z zero, ZPZ. Yeah. yeah. Um, they're, you know, not only did Bourdain himself rise to incredible fame, but so did they. That was really their, their, their yeah. rocket to the I top. I didn't know the story. I saw the Roadrunner movie. Yeah, they were just struggling. Just Right. Yeah, so they so they have looked for other, or at least when I went and talked to them, they were looking for other um, properties. But still, they, you know, th the other thing about wine is it's hard to get sponsors because it's alcohol. 
Mm. Right? Mm -hmm. So, um, I mean, the Italians have no problem with this. <laughs> Olive oil people will sponsor you. Right. But, but American, like breakfast cereals, no. Yeah. They are not going to sponsor a wine show. I, you know, I was actually at dinner with a, a French winemaker uh, from the Shadow Enough uh, female. And um, she blew me away. She's like, you can't, even in France, they have to be careful advertising their alcohol. I was like, what? I was like, you guys have naked women on TV, and you can't, <laughs> but you can't advertise alcohol on TV. Right. <laughs> you know, so, uh, but like I said, a, a lot of those PBS shows, it's all the olive oil. Well, it's a lot of like Lydia, but it's like. Yeah, Lydia Bastianich, yeah, exactly. <clears throat> Doing a great job there. Um, so when did the Today Show happen? Was this before or after the PBS series? Yeah, that was way before. Okay. Um, because, and my, um, when I started, Bryant Gumbel was the host, so that's going back a ways. But Bryant, I mean, the lawyers would go crazy. They'd be like, come on, it's 7 in the morning. You have this woman on with, with wine? And he had such power. He would say, yes, we are. We're not going to drink. We're, the wine will be open. We'll swirl. Um, but it's part of life. It's yeah, I would think that, that, that demographic, I mean, for that show, are people who are going to drink wine with dinner. Like, why would, like... Make their day better. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. Well, you got to go home and try that wine that Karen and Brian were talking about. Yeah. The lawyers. Lawyers ruin everything. <laughs> <laughs> um, so how long did you do that? Um, I did that for a number of, yeah, a number of years. And um, how many years? Uh, probably three or four years. And then did PBS. Okay. Um, in the early days of of writing when I was trying to still get published I also did I had this wonderful show on WMCA radio in New York called Living Well in New York which was a radio call-in show and it was the first time I got used to you know being doing other kinds of media which I love to this day I love talking on radio and podcasts so we were talking about this earlier it's, it's very similar right yeah, yeah you have a great voice too Good, good radio voice. Um, so what was that like? So people like calling him like, hey, Karen, um, you know, my mother-in-law is coming to town. <laughs> and I really want to impress her. Like, was it like that kind of thing? Or? You know, the um, because I was young and I, and I was scared, right, I didn't trust myself because it was a four-hour show. So that's I a would, lot of talking. That's a lot of talking. And I would script everything a little bit, and uh, or more than a little bit. And I would have guests, just like you're having me on as a guest. So the guests would come, and, um, and I remember, and you would talk to engineers with your hands. Mm -hmm. You know, you'd do hand signals to the engineers who were running the big board uh, for you. We used to have that here. Well, they, they just changed it, but there used to be a window so I could communicate. Yeah. <laughs> So literally, Hi, engineers I know. Back there. Right. But you, if you've been to the other studio, you'd be like, wow, it is like you'd be, you'd be in like a radio station. It's like it's totally like a recording studio. Exactly. Yeah, it's like a recording yeah. studio. So one day, this was when I was early, uh, early on, I had let my fourth guest go. And in those days, you know, you were supposed to be talking, talking, talking until they got the AP, Associated Press Wire, right up in, right at 12 noon. So I'm watching the second hand, big, big clock in the studio, and I'm saying, Karen McNeil, WMCA Radio, living well in New York, here's the AP wire, and now news from the Associated Press, and I hear the, the engineers talking in my earphones, and they say, 
can't get the AP wire, technical difficulties, keep going. I, I looked at mm -hmm. them like a deer in the headlights. I'm like, keep going? I had nothing to say. <laughs> I mean, nothing. I could not. I, I'd let my big mistake, do not ever let your last guest go yep. until you're done, right? I had nothing, nobody to talk to and nothing to say. And so I hear the engineers, they're now yelling at me through my earphones. Talk. Right, We've no got radio, you got radio yeah. silence, you got dead right. air. Dead air, talk, talk, say anything. So anyway, I don't know how it came out of me, but I said, um, you know, our last guest was talking about uh, zinc in foods, because it was a food and wine show. And do you realize that zinc is one of the best-known aphrodisiacs? I, I don't know where that came out of, right? I don't even know if that's true. But the engineers are going like, yes, right? That's keep so going, funny. keep going. The board now lights up. People start calling in. Are aphrodisiacs really real? So anyway, I went for about 20 more minutes till we could get the AP wire. I walk out of the studio. I'm drenched in sweat because I was so nervous. <laughs> Ted Koppel, very famous Ted Koppel, takes me aside, who was an old hand at radio, and he says, let me tell you what to do the next time that happens to you, because it happens to every radio person, something terrible, and you've got dead air. Mm -hmm. um, and so radio was great in those days, because you had all these great old timers who would kind of take you under their wing and, and teach you what to do. Yeah, it's... I'm thinking. Of, I mean, it's so fascinating. I, I didn't know Ted Koppel did radio, but like we were talking about earlier with writing. I mean, it, it's it's not anything that people were making a whole lot of money. This is before the shock jocks and these major contracts. You know, it was just like you earned a living, right? You know, um, so that's very interesting. So, what you know, I was thinking about this on the way in on the train. I was like, okay, so it's called the Wine Bible. Um, and now it's on its third edition. I mean, I mean they they only made like I mean I guess you could call, you had the old test the new testament was like the <laughs> was like the updated edition of the Bible. Um, what um, what were some what are some of the major uh, editions? Uh, let's see, let's do what from from the second to the third edition because you know the first one was like over twenty years ago now. So. Yeah, the first one was in two thousand and one, yeah. and then the second one was in two thousand and fifteen. Um, there, there are a lot of new, new regions like Great Britain. If someone said to me 20 years ago that Great Britain would eventually be a wine region, I would think absolutely not. Isn't but that crazy? It's un and those sparkling wines are so delicious. This what is what I find is crazy is like just the synergy. Again, I, I was in Walla Walla, but I was talking to a winemaker, and he was uh, was I don't know if he was in London. He was in London. He was at Noble Rot. Yeah. Are you doing rain for them at all? No, I okay, don't. Okay, okay. Yeah. But anyway, I just. Um, but anyway, he was at Noble Rot, hanging out with some people in Noble Rot, and he's like, "Okay, I know you guys are, have some, you know, stellar sparkling. That's the word." He's like, "Blind me," so he blinded him on champagne. Yeah. And the British stuff. The British. He liked the British stuff way more. Yes. Like, like it's like, but and it's like, but now it's like expensive. Now. Like, like, it's like. Krug expensive type yeah. shit coming out of Britain now. Yes. Well, in part, it's because the wine regions of southern England are only about 45 minutes south of London. 
So the real estate is outrageously expensive. Mm. Uh, but those sparkling wines are incredible. So there's that. Mm-hmm. Um, China is much bigger um, as a wine producer now than it was ever before. There are old places that are new again, like, like Armenia, Croatia. Croatia yeah. Yeah, yeah. The, all of the original places in, the, yeah. in Central Europe. But, you know, <coughs> the, the part Pet that... Pet Nats, natural wine. You got anything on natural wine in there? Yeah. This is your face. I had to put... <laughs> I, I, I did have to put some natural wine stuff in there. I mean, I you know, I feel like um, who wouldn't want uh, the wine they drink to be as pure as possible right. and have. But most of the great wine in the world is that. Wine. That That's thank you. That's kind of like my whole point is like that is it's so misleading. Um, you know, um, most of the wine in the world is. I mean, and even the sulfur, I go through the sulfur debate. I mean, yes, I understand it, but sulfur is a naturally occurring compound. So to add sulfur, how does that not make it natural? Yeah. Right, on the periodic table, there's sulfur. It's exactly. right up there. That's not unnatural. That's exactly right. Um, and like you said, even and at the highest levels, like even now in Bordeaux, a lot of the top shore are moving to biodynamic. I mean, you know, so like it, it's a very interesting, uh, I don't know if debate's the right word, conversation. Yeah, because we don't debate anymore in this country on anything. People are either no. anti or for. So it's an interesting conversation. Yeah. Um, you know what else though is um, is different that no one would necessarily ask you or even assume. So every new edition, you know, you expect to have new information. But the other thing that changes is that hopefully you yourself got better. Mm-hmm. Right, you yourself, as a writer, as a researcher, as someone who can explain complicated issues in a really um, easily understandable way, you, as a writer, as an author, hopefully got better. So I think I got a bit better. Mm-hmm. I like that. I like that. So you do lots of things, though. I mean, um, how did um, where did the idea to? Because uh, you mentioned your students. Um, so you, ha- um, how did the idea? of the Rudd Center for Professional Wine Studies come to be and come into fruition? One day in 1996 when the CIA, the Culinary Institute of America, moved and opened a campus in the Napa Valley, just down the street from where I live, uh, the, the head of the CIA called me up because we knew each other from New York and he said, do you want to teach a wine class? And I said, sure, what would you like me to teach? And he said, you know, I'm so busy getting the school open, which is primarily a culinary school, literally whatever you want. Mm -hmm. So I started this class called Mastering Wine, eight hours a day for a week. Um, It became, within a year, the highest grossing class at the CIA. Mm. So one day, the president of the the big senior president of the CIA came out from New York, and he said, "What exactly are you teaching in that class? Because you know, it's really earning the CIA a lot of money." And um, I hope you're getting a cut of that. Yeah, so. I, I was. Okay. I was, okay. Good. Okay. Good. I was learning to ask for the right okay. cut. <laughs> so. Um, Anyway, I tell him what, you know, what the class involves, and he said, could we do more classes like this? And I said, I think you could do a whole school like this, a whole school within a school, but uh, no one knows, because you've never done it, 
I haven't either. Let me do a feasibility study. So the CIA paid me to do uh, about a three-month feasibility study, uh, the answer to which was, yeah, this could be a really, um, you know, a good thriving part of the Culinary Institute. So uh, as it happens, um, I also uh, found, found um, Leslie Rudd, the dece- late Leslie Rudd, mm-hmm. who, is a, uh, who owns Red, owned, now his daughter owns um, Rudd Winery in Napa Valley, wealthy man, interested in history, very interested in education, agreed to give the seed money. So now I had a money and a, um, uh, you know, a plan and a person myself to execute the plan. So, you know, I like stuff like this. I like, I like trying to see an opportunity where none existed before. There was nothing before the Wine Bible in, in the United States. I kind of created it in my head. There wasn't a wine program at the CIA. I created it in my head. My own business is is very idiosyncratic because it just has grown as I have. Yeah, so <clears throat> let's talk about your business. Um, I, your, 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 t- well, let's go to tie in. Your style of wine education has been um, referred to as a, like a TED Talk-esque <laughs> Um, when did you actually start? How long did you start the wine consultancy that that did win the award of uh, best uh, wine consultancy? You know, it it maybe this is more true for <coughs> women than men, but it took me <coughs> excuse me a long time to say I was a wine consultant. And it took me years before I would say, I'm a wine expert. Mm-hmm. If people asked me, what do you do? I wouldn't say, I'm a wine expert. I would say, you know, I know something about wine. Or even say, I'm a wine writer. I would say, I write about wine for years before mm-hmm. I would say, I'm a wine writer. So you can't, in my mind, it, it's not appropriate, or at least it wasn't for me, to just hang out a shingle one day and say, I'm a wine consultant. I had to prove to myself, kind of the, the hardest person to prove anything to, that, that there was some gravitas behind that. So as in many other things, people would, um, in, in my case, people would see what I was doing and then say, hey, could you come and talk to this group of lawyers or um, talk to this group of doctors? So once that started to happen for me, I got very serious about watching how people present. And I started going to all kinds of presentations in New York, even about things I didn't know or even care about, watches. I just wanted to watch how people present, watch their rhythm, right? Watch when they told jokes, watch their ease, watch when they got quiet. Just just develop because I didn't have money to train myself in um, in any of these fine skills, but you can learn that just by watching. I mean, back to Barack Obama. For God's sake, the man is brilliant at that. I, I sometimes, when he was running for president, um, I would say to my husband, my husband would be like, "Wow, did you hear what he just said about?" Her? I'd be like, "No." I'm just watching him, right? I'm watching him present, Mm -hmm. not even sometimes listening Mm -hmm. to the words. Mm -hmm. Um, 
So I taught myself a lot by doing that, and I developed a, a style that was, I, I was able to be willing to be vulnerable, which is the most powerful thing you can be in front of other people. Mm. Um, I was going to, the questions, because I don't, I keep it light because I want to see, we're having a conversation, but it's how your brain works. You, you already answered the question. It was going to be like, I was going to say, what advice would you give someone bringing in? And, and you're like, study, like study, watch people. And nowadays we have YouTube, so you don't even have to. Yeah. You know, one of the, um, one of the things, and I, I know you've seen this too, that really upsets me is when, and this often happens, someone learns a lot about wine, and then what do they, they, what do, they do? They want to show off, right? So they're just like, blah, 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 blah. Here's all the stuff I know about wine. Yeah. And, and I, I, I feel like you should turn, one should turn the binoculars around. It's not what I know about wine. It's like, what would be interesting for someone to hear what, what, what can they receive? What, what natural questions do they probably have in their head? And so I'm always reminding myself, keep those binoculars turned around. Think about what a person would, would find funny or wonderful or fascinating. Not, you know, <laughs> I'm so lucky I get to taste a whole lot of great wine. Too bad you're not there. Right. I hate that stuff. Yeah. No, I often... Um, people ask, um, you know, I don't listen to other, I don't, I used to listen to pies, but now I'm producing one. I don't listen to them because I, I want to be fresh. But when I do try every now and then, like there's this thing, well, you should see what other people are doing. Every time it's just what you said. It's like Malbec is a grape from <laughs> the Southwest of France, Cahors. But you know what I mean? And I'm like, that's not interesting. Like the, my whole point in doing this was like, who do I want to, share wine with and get their story right and i think the i don't know if, but the one of the most people are like oh my god she ran away from home she's 14 and a half like that that's what's going to resonate they want but that's what's going to resonate with people because how many people every time you open your mouth and share you've made how many people are like that happened to me too or this you know what i mean like mm -hmm. you know i grew up in it so it's and i think it's just going to be so inspirational like like bam look where you are now um so but I also your client list is pretty freaking impressive. Like it's like, <laughs> yeah. like it's like you're, you're not um, you know you're not uh, doing a, you know, uh, bachelorette parties and uh, bridal showers. Like um, like you like, like they have. Wait, this one blew me away. LMVH. Like they 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 sell all this stuff and they bring it you into like. Well, you know, uh, Louis Vuitton, Moet Hennessy, yeah. I'm right, one of the great luxury wine giants of, <laughs> of <laughs> contemporary life. Um, and they own, you know, they have more money than God in a way and, and own a lot of many, uh, a lot of many, sorry. They own a lot uh, of hanging many, out with me too long, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they own many great wineries. But w they, I did a project for them that I really loved. They... They are so good, and they have so many fabulous wines that over time, the head of marketing realized that their salespeople were just, they were having a harder and harder time because they started to refer to all of their wines as iconic. Well, you, you can't, wait a minute, not every wine is iconic. And they, 
salespeople, you can really forgive them for this. You know, they just get into this zone where um, you just find yourself repeating the same stuff over and over again. And so the head of marketing of LVMH called me up and, and she said, we, we just we need fresh ideas. We need new words. We need someone who really does understand wine, but who comes at it from a different angle entirely. So I loved that. I had a great time. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> do you think um, the fact that you don't have like, like why didn't you pursue an MW? Do you think that, you know, like I think, or you're not an MS or an MW, do you think is that what leads and that you come more from the literary uh, side is why you're able to connect more versus is that, do you think that has to do with it at all? Or how much, how much do you think that has to do with it? That's a better question. I kind of like not having a, <coughs> not having a degree. <coughs> I mean, I don't have a degree in anything. Um, so I'm, but both of the things that I love, writing and wine, you are judged by how well you can do them. You're not judged by do you have uh, a degree. I mean, maybe if you're an accountant or something, right, you do have to have a degree. But writing is self is evident, right? Mm -hmm. If you mm -hmm. want to work for the New York Times, they don't say, show me your journalism degree. They say, here, write a paragraph on this glass of water. Right. And if you can do it, you can do it. And the same with wine. You, I think in... Great Britain in the, uh, you know, in the 50s when the MW, Master of Wine, first began, it really did make a difference to your income. You really did, if you were in the trade. Mm -hmm. I'm not so sure it makes a difference to your income in the United States. Um, every now and then I think, oh, maybe I should go for an MW. Um, and I, I actually was with Mary Mulligan um, in a group of the, 15 people in New York in 1991 mm -hmm. who were chosen to go into the MW program. But that was the same year I got the contract for the Wine Bible, and I thought, you know, I'll, I better do this book because it'll be a good way mm -hmm. to prepare in any case. But after the Wine Bible, I, you know, I talked to some uh, people at MW headquarters in London, and they said, you know, you have your own MW. The, the the Wine Bible is your MW. I mean, you could do it um, just for fun. But I don't know. I also love my own business. So, mm -hmm. um, yeah, it wouldn't make a difference, I don't think, to me. Well, clearly, I mean, it's not going to – you're not going to get a big pay bump. <laughs> you're you're no. good. <laughs> no one's like, oh, we got to pay her more now. <laughs> right. Yeah. But I, I completely respect – um, both the MW and the MS, um, they are, you know, they're both really hard. Mm -hmm. You really have to know your stuff. The one thing I might not like about it so much is um, it, it, it causes your thinking to be very linear and standardized. And I, I kind of like my head to be able to range around a little bit more. No, yeah, I, I, I can definitely um, agree with that. I mean, I had, like I said, Mary, you, she was like, listen, I know you know enough about wine to sit here and have a conversation with me, and I have a master's of wine. So, what more do you need? And and uh, and yeah, like people, I see, 
I see this in social media. It's like, oh, I have a WSCT one and I have a two or a three. I'm like, all right, that means ostensibly you know 24 wines that you knew you're going to get tested on. So that means <laughs> you've gone out and like really explored, you know. And so it is. This, it's a it's an interesting balancing act. Um, you know what I want to jump in and and say about that with you because I, I I bet you agree with me, which is there there are now in the country a lot of people who know a lot about wine. What what I think we lack are people who are good thinkers about mm -hmm. wine. Mm -hmm. One thing is memorizing a mm -hmm. whole bunch of mm -hmm. stuff. And mm -hmm. if you've got enough time and you're a reasonably intelligent person, you can memorize a whole bunch of stuff. But thinking about it well is a whole different ballgame. Yeah, because I, I, uh, I agree. You're right. Um, I worked in education for a little bit, nonprofit side. I never taught. But there is this there's this thing when when you realize that um, education has become a commodity it's to get the next degree or whatever it's not you're not it's you know it's become um, like I said we, we uh, as you can see just like we have a lack, a lack of thinking going on right now just generally um, and the ability to formulate your own opinion and to share it and articulate and um, so I definitely agree with that. Um, but you're like, again, you are all, you're like, you are a, a addition to be this incredible wine expert. You're, 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 you have some business savvy. Um, talk about wine speed. Yeah. Wine speed. I love this. So this wine speed is my, um, free digital newsletter. It comes out every Friday, comes to your inbox. Um, you can just sign up for it by going to winespeed.com. And we have about 40,000 subscribers. Wow. Yeah. But, you know, it's free. Uh, but <laughs> I want to keep it free because and every, you know, once a year in my office, we debate, oh, maybe we should charge a subscription, so on and so forth. But. You could. I, you could do I another could. level. I mean. Yeah, I know. I mean, uh, ostensibly, listen, as long as you keep it free, listen, you got 40,000 people. You, I'm, yeah, you're leaving a lot of money on the table. I said, but like, there's, if you just offered something to some, there's there's people who want to pay more. They just are. Yeah. Why don't you serve? I mean, I mean, nothing wrong. I mean, keep it free. Don't don't ever put it behind. But like, there there's people who want it. Yeah, we well we might, but for now, okay. All, all your listeners should jump in now. I was going to say, right? At least right now, it's yeah, free. Yeah, exactly. And I'm, it's I'm, your like your little dose of wine every week, and you can. It's not like a standard newsletter. It's super graphic, and you can read it in as much time as it takes to open a bottle of wine. You can read the whole thing, and you know, we every week we do a wine quiz, and there are like people all over the country who will. Text me or write me like, oh, I can't believe I missed the wine quiz this week. <laughs> it's it's just it's so great. It has a life of its own, and you know it's kind of opposite to the wine bible, but unlike a lot of blogs, you know we we spend in my office a lot of time on too much time probably making sure wine speed is is right and we fact check it and we bring to it well thank you for bringing some integrity to <laughs> this thing called the internet <laughs> yeah 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 um that's that's incredible um and um oh you do so many things um so talk about the pandemic because you had to pivot like everyone did uh, I'm sure you were out on the road um, doing talks and events uh, several months out of the year, probably. Um, so uh, what did you do once we uh, went into kind of like lockdown? 
I uh, quickly kind of dusted off the old um, television and radio skills um, and started doing all of, you know, because my, my business went from having whatever we had, I don't know, it wasn't an enormous amount, but uh, that was, remember, it was about April mm-hmm. and March when, s- when really, really yeah, hit. 2020, when yep. it really hit. And I went from having X many thousands of dollars on the books for events that I was about to do to zero, mm-hmm. absolutely no money mm-hmm. coming in uh, with employees to pay. Um, so we were successfully able to start doing uh, videos, which I I loved. And I realized that, I mean, maybe it's hard to do TV, but you can do, you can do videos with wine very successfully. And a lot of our clients, big law firms um, and uh, insurance firms and uh, big companies like that, we're also desperate to keep their people together somehow. And right. so we would send wine out to, you know, 25 lawyers who belong to, uh, you know, law firm X and uh, with a video invite and people would jump on. And, and now video is a big part of our business. And for people who um, are, are wine lovers, all of a sudden, it was great. They they could jump on. We do a lot of live virtual tastings mm-hmm. called Taste with Karen, and or Sip with Karen rather, and um, you know it's sort of free education. Jump on, um, listen for forty five minutes, uh, get involved, buy the wine too. Um, it's great. It's been fabulous. I think N- not just for my um, company, but for people who have wanted to learn about wine. Um, you don't have to go anywhere. Just jump on your computer. Jump on Zoom. That's fabulous. Yeah. Do you have a wine partner like I, like Kevin Zrelli did the same? He uses wine.com. Like, I think it gave people access to people whose books they had read, and you know, um, it gave them access to to people like you. Yeah. Well, Kevin is my old friend, and we um, we like used to date a long, long time ago. I think he took me on the Staten Island Ferry on uh-huh. our first date. <laughs> I always remind him of that, like big spender there. But he did bring he did bring a bottle of Dom Perignon, which we drank without glasses, uh, sitting on the Staten Island Ferry. Okay, so I, that's kind that of a dope. Okay. That's kind of a dope date. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, we were young. Exactly. Um, but I'm like when Kevin made the deal with Wine.com, I thought. Oh, I could just, oh, <laughs> oh, you were right there ahead of me. Uh, yeah, Kevin is great, though, and he's he's a fantastic teacher. Yeah, I, I, I think we really wouldn't have Wine Education America without him, and he is an amazing teacher, and I, I, I think it's, um, but again, I, you have, you know, I tell people, I'm like, Kevin really doesn't have any letters behind his name. Like, it, it was, it was on the job, you know, and, and you two are some of the most influential wine writers. I mean, his book and your book are like on just about every master wine or master psalm shelf anyway, particularly if they're from the, the States, you know what I mean? Yeah, he, he's, 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 so, he's so great. And in fact, on the cover of Wine Bible 3, the third edition, um, yeah, is, a quote, a, yeah, is a quote, is a quote from, from Kevin. Yeah, yeah. yeah, so he's, he's my dear friend and um, just a, a brilliant man. And so um, you also kind of have, um, is it a podcast, but it's Talks with Karen? How, how, what do you, how do you categorize your, uh, 
your wine talks with Karen. Yeah, they're, um, you know, we call them just, well, everyone calls them, I guess, live virtual tastings. Okay. And we. But you uh, just did something like with Blaine, uh, Champagne Week. It's, it's Champagne Week. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Uh, well, those, yeah, those are our live virtual tastings. Okay, it's still live virtual. Okay. Yep. And we wow. interview, uh, we interview people who are. Um, either other people in the industry or sometimes uh, wine producers. And um, we have, uh, we're getting pretty good. At we have a teleprompter in our office now and a studio. Maybe not as, I just I want all the listeners to know that your studio is more spiffy this than mine. This is not my studio. I rent this space. This ah. is for the record. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a fabulous But I mean, studio. yeah, this is a, actually is, I mean, I think a lot of... Um, People, uh, it's in New York, so some big people actually do record out of here. Yeah. Uh, um, just not, just, you know, bigger people, I'm not even, I don't even, I can't even think of the word. Uh, just not your average, just run of the mill podcasters come here as well. Let's put it that way. Well, uh, you know. Look at you, yeah. I mean, right? <laughs> Thank you. But anyway, these live virtual tastings, um, you can, if you go on Wine Speed every week, uh, we tell you uh, okay. what's coming and how to jump on and, um, yeah. It's it's as easy as there. We provide a link. You register and and you join in. So you live in the Napa Valley. How long have you lived in the Napa Valley? Since the mid 1990s, and oh. I moved there from New York. Um, you could argue, <laughs> maybe it wasn't uh, the smartest move in one way because I gave up all those fabulous tastings that you get to go to, for example. Um, that are here. I'm thinking about moving to wine country, though, because for what I do interviews, I mean, I have to wait for you to come, for people to come through New York City. Yeah, yeah, it's different now. It's, yeah. yeah, you can live in wine country, and yeah. I, I just believed that somehow living closer to grapevines yep. would make me better mm -hmm. at what I do, and just kind of through osmosis, and and it has. I love living in wine country. So that begs the question: How come you never have you have you well have you ever made a wine? No. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Why haven't you made a wine? Because I would imagine you've been there since midnight. You have all these friends, like you know the Ruds. They would throw you some some tonnage. Yeah. You can make you can make some really you know. I'm sure you could get your hands on some nice fruit, and uh, you know make something small. Yeah. Um. I don't know why I have never, uh, I mean, I've picked, I've worked a harvest, but um, I don't, <clears throat> I love the feeling of, of being broad, right? Having this global knowledge mm -hmm. um, and, and to begin to see connections between why certain things are done in certain places. Whereas when you're a winemaker, you're going deep, right? You've got one, you're one terroir, and you're knowing that as deeply and personally as you can. So I guess I, you know, I've always wanted to have the world view. Okay. All right. Now there's something that see that's part of your offer, right? <laughs> you do make a wine that next level. And <laughs> Karen's got this two pack wine. <laughs> <laughs> all right, all right. You're giving me a good idea here. <laughs> um so um just a couple more questions. I will let you go soon. I, I would love to talk some more, but I'm not going to, uh, uh, you know, you've got pieces to go people to see. Um, 
so uh, we're going to um, play a game right now, um, and it's called FMK, and it the, fir- the F stands for a word that rhymes with tuck. <laughs> uh, marry and kill. I'm going to give you three grapes, and you get to tuck one, you get to marry one, and you have to kill one off. Oh, okay. All right. Okay. Um, you ready? Mm. Um, Nebbiolo, Pinot Noir, Tempranillo. What grape? What grape do you fuck? What grape do you marry? We kill. What do you got? Do you got Pinot Noir, Tempranillo, and Nebbiolo? All right. Oh man, this is hard. Um, I'm gonna marry Nebbiolo. Because it is, it reveals itself over a long period of time. Mm. So that's going to be a nice long marriage. I like that. Uh, I'm going to knock off Tempranillo. I'm so sorry, Tempranillo <laughs> in Spain. Uh, but uh, I love you, but you've got to go. And um, Pinot Noir. Yeah, Pinot Noir, I'm, I'm going to tuck into bed with because uh, thank you for that. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's just, you know, it's just so sexy, Pinot Noir. Yeah, very cool. Very cool. <laughs> um, what are you most excited about for the future? I'm really excited that the wine industry and we wine consumers are waking up about climate chaos. You know, in Napa Valley, I have I have had to evacuate three times in the last mm. five years. It's, it's no longer climate change, which sounds like change, isn't that good? We all love change. It's climate chaos. Mm-hmm. Um, the Union of Concerned Scientists a couple of years ago gave the wine industry 28 years, 28 years before certain grapes begin to go extinct. It's, you know, uh, scientists refer to wine grapes as a so-called indicator crop, meaning that they're one of the first crops to go Mm -hmm. um, because they're so, grapes and vines are so um, dependent on water and just a certain amount of sun and not enough, not too much humidity, all of that. So, So scientists are watching wine grapes very closely um, because right behind them are big crops like soybeans and corn. These are, these are the crops on which human life depends. It's, um, so we, we, there's no more, we're out of time. We are way out of time. And, and I'm, I'm excited that people are, are beginning to understand that. Okay, and just one last question. Because um, you've been drinking wine since you're 14 and a half, 15. Um, but what if, if if you can if there is, is there a bottle of wine that that really started all when you when you had that bottle of wine, um, you were just like oh I, like that that light bulb moment for you. Yeah, well, my eighty nine cent Bulgarian reds I think of very fondly. Mm. Um, I I remember being incredibly startled by uh, a Gigal coat roti, um, Blonde et Brune, you know, that's, mm-hmm. it's this wine called bl- the Blonde and the Brunette. And it's from a part of the Northern Rhone, a tiny part called Cote Roti. And the wines there are just 
outrageous. I mean, you just put it in your mouth and you cannot believe. It's, I call these wines primal scream, mm. right? They're just screaming with um, spice and blood and guts and tar, and they're so corrupt and outrageous. You're <laughs> I just like, like that corrupt. wow, like, what? what is this? Um, and uh, that was my first introduction to the idea that wine could drink you. I mean, mm. I really felt like I was not drinking this wine. It was drinking me. It was in charge. And I, a whole new world of outrageousness opened for me. <laughs> That's a great way to end. Karen, thank you so much uh, for coming in. This has been really fun. Uh, tell people where they can find you, how they can be a part of what you're doing. Yes, um, easy. Uh, KarenMcNeil.com. Um, you can buy a signed copy of the Wine Bible there. Or for a list of everything we're doing all the time and, and all the changes that happen, uh, WineSpeed.com. Get your daily, or not daily, but weekly dose of fun wine information and, um, and see all the stuff we're up to. And join in. Yeah, guys, make sure because you heard me pitching her on, on. She always she said it's going to be free, but you, you should. I just I'm going to go home and sign up for that list myself. <laughs> Actually, I'm going to do it on the train on my phone. Um, uh, for all you listeners out there, <coughs> excuse me. <coughs> um, ooh, travel. Uh, don't forget to check out the show notes for each episode. That's where you're going to find info on uh, where we can, we're going to put Karen's info on her website. You can see it right there. We'll put her social media handles um, and, uh, you know, links to some of the cool stuff we discussed. Until the next time, cheers to all you mavericks, philosophers, deep thinkers, and wine drinkers. It's MJ. Peace. <laughs>